Lord Jesus, we do thank you for all that you do for us. For all that you did for us 2,000 years ago in coming to this world, you stepped off your heavenly throne. You came into a broken world in order to redeem us. And you paid such a, a price for our redemption. But we say thank you. And thank you that you, the good news of what you've accomplished for us continues to have an impact in our lives here today, here in the 21st century. We know that we live in a, a world with many, many challenges. But we thank you that in the midst of a broken and challenging world that you give us hope and that you give us life. And I pray that as we open Scripture today once more to the book of 2 Timothy, that you will teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we will be thoroughly equipped for everything to which you are calling us. And we pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. Today we are concluding our series called Passing the Baton, and the series walks through the book of 2 Timothy using the metaphor of a relay race to represent the Christian life. Because in a relay race, each runner has a responsibility to run hard in their part of the race. But they don't run merely for themselves. They also run as part of a team because they are called then to pass the baton on to the next runner in the race. And similarly, in the Christian life, we are called to follow hard after Jesus. But then we are also called to pass the baton of faith in Christ and pass the baton of the gospel to those around us as we run this race. And we've been walking, as I said, through the book of 2 Timothy And one of the really cool things about passing the baton to those around us is the legacy that we have the opportunity to leave in the lives of those around us. That our life truly can impact other people's lives, not just here on this earth, but for eternity. Let me give you an example of how one person's life, when they pass that baton, can affect others. Back in late March, I was on Facebook, and I I saw these posts popping up from some of my friends about the unexpected death of a man named Mike Montgomery. Now, I did not know Mike personally, but I've heard of Mike many times down through the years. For one, because he was very influential in the lives of several men who I knew well. But also, I knew of Mike because he had become one of the pastors of the church that Shelley and I were very involved with up in Fargo, North Dakota years ago. And so I'd heard of Mike, and I saw on Facebook about how he had unexpectedly died. I want to read you a couple of the Facebook posts that I saw on that day that illustrate the power of the legacy of passing the baton. The first comes from a man named Pete Yolden. Pete was one of my mentors when I was on staff with crew up in Fargo. And Pete wrote on Facebook that day, he said, Today, a man who was one of the greatest influences in my life passed away. He was the reason a 15-year-old kid thought it was cool to start going to a youth group. He was the one who led me into a relationship with Jesus when I was 16. His words inspired me to read the Bible from cover to cover. He was a second father to me, and his home was a second home. He performed our wedding 24 years ago. I have so many memories of how he formed my character. Without a doubt, I would not be doing what I'm doing now without his influence. Heaven is now his home, but I will miss him here very dearly. Thanks, Mike Montgomery, for shaping me in ways in which my family and I are eternally grateful. I wish I could have said these things to you more often. So you see the power of influencing someone else in their walk with God. 
That day, I also saw a post from Nick Hall, who was a student involved with Crew up in Fargo, and since then has begun uh, leading an evangelistic ministry called Pulse. Nick wrote on that day, Today, my world has been rocked by the sudden loss of my mentor and dear friend, Pastor Mike Montgomery. I have known Mike since I was just a little boy. He stepped in and offered to mentor me 10 years ago at a time I desperately needed it and had all but given up on someone older slowing down to invest in my life. Mike believed in me, and for the past 10 years, we have talked at least three times a week. Mike would celebrate my victories, cheer on my vision, mourn with my losses, and offer a loving rebuke when I was getting off course. Over and over, week after week, he would tell me, Nick, I am so proud of you which was something I desperately needed to hear. Mike was a safe place to confide in and was the first person to look me in the eyes as I shared my crazy dreams and say, if you stay humble, Nick, God can do this through you. Now, Nick wrote a lot more, but here are a few more excerpts. Mike, I love you more than words could ever express, and I don't know how I'm going to do this without you because I wasn't ready for you to go. Until Jesus comes... I will follow your example as you led me to him. I will invest in others because you invested in me. You showed me what discipleship is, what faith is, what friendship is. You modeled joy like no one I have ever known, and I pray that somehow I can be like you to others. I grew up dreaming to be like Mike because of basketball, but now I know that was simply a foreshadowing of the greatest Mike I would ever know. I want to be like you, Mike, because you are like Jesus. I will see you soon, my friend. Life is a vapor. I will make mine count. So Mike Montgomery, in many ways, was a normal guy. Yet he loved Jesus, and he passed that baton on to those around him in whom he invested. And even, even though I didn't know Mike Montgomery personally, in some ways he's kind of like a spiritual grandfather to me. Because of his influence years and years ago on Pete Yolden, who then deeply influenced me in my walk with God and my ministry during such a formative uh, season in my life, just right out of college, just starting in ministry. So we see here an example of the legacy that someone can leave when they invest themselves in the spiritual growth of others. And I hope it's been clear to you throughout this series that you don't have to be some sort of spiritual superhero to have an impact on someone else's spiritual life. All it takes is simply seeking to follow Jesus and investing in the lives of those around us. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy. Now, we are going to see today the last words that we have recorded from the Apostle Paul just before he died. And we're coming to the end of this letter. We've been studying it for the last couple months. And you have to understand that ancient letters, when they come to the end, frequently they get kind of random. Because back then, they did not have all the ways to communicate that we have today. We have telephones. We, have, we, have, we can text. We can email. We can do social media. Um, I mean, they didn't even have faxes or telegrams back then. So to communicate just practical information, if they don't see each other face-to-face, they stick it in a letter. And at the end of many of Paul's letters, he has all kinds of information that he needs to communicate that wasn't a part of the main body of the letter. And in fact, here at the end of 2 Timothy, 
He's communicating about personal details that are going on with him. And he's also communicating about various ministry details that he thinks, Paul, he thinks Timothy should know. So, so I invite you to follow along as I read 2 Timothy chapter 4, picking up in verse 9. Paul says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila with the household and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. So there is a lot going on in this passage. But before we dig into some details, let me just give us an outline of this passage that we read, verses 9 through the end of the book to 22. And we see, first of all, it breaks it into four different parts. The first part in verses 9 through 13 is a summons for Timothy to come to Paul in Rome. Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and he says, Timothy, come quickly. Now, why does he want Timothy to come visit him especially quickly? Well, I think part of it is that Paul is kind of lonely. He lists four different men who had been with him, but now they are elsewhere. He says Demas deserted him. Now, we don't know the full details, but but Demas had been a fellow worker in in, in ministry. But, you know, his his devotion to Paul and the ministry wavered. Things got kind of tough, so Demas left. Now, the other people who left, they, the, other, the other departures, they were not desertions. Instead, they were three men who were sent out by Paul on specifically, specific ministry endeavors. They were Crescens, Titus, um, and also Tychicus. They were sent out on ministry endeavors. But, but the reality is, he says, only Luke is there with him. He, he is a bit lonely. And on top of that, Timothy was so incredibly special to him. At the beginning of 1 Timothy, at the beginning of 2 Timothy, Paul calls Timothy my beloved son in the faith. In the book of Philippians, Paul says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. Paul had mentored Timothy for many years. Timothy had accompanied Paul on many, on many journeys. They had become like a father and a son. And now as Paul sees the end of his days on this earth coming near, he wants Timothy by his side. So we see, first of all, a summons for Timothy to come. Moving ahead to verses 14 and 15, we see a warning about Alexander. 
Now, there are several possibilities of who this Alexander is. Scholars aren't fully sure who he is. My hypothesis, based on Acts chapter 19, that talks about an Alexander, and also in First and Second Timothy, my hypothesis is that this Alexander was a Jewish Christian who had been living in Ephesus, and, and he had been a brother in Christ with, with Paul, a fellow worker in the harvest field. But something happened. And, and I, my hypothesis is that Alexander got caught up in some heresy, he, and he then began to fiercely oppose Paul. And he may have even been the one who made accusations against Paul that led to Paul's arrest, led to his imprisonment, and to his eventual death. That's a hypothesis. It makes sense when you put together the pieces, but we aren't absolutely sure. But the bottom line that Paul is communicating to Timothy is that Alexander is a troublemaker. You need to watch out for him. And we move on in this passage, and we see, um, uh, see in the side that Paul makes about, about his trial. We see that in verses 16 through 18. And he, he says, you know what, I had my first trial, my first defense. But we see again this theme of loneliness, of isolation. Because he was all alone. No one came to be with him in that trial. And then verses 19 through 22 contain his final greetings along with a blessing. And so this is the basic outline of this passage. I want to dig into this passage a bit more and make two observations uh, about Paul and about making disciples, about passing the baton. And the first observation is the fact that Paul was a disciple maker to the end. To the end. I mean, his, his time on this earth at this point is nearly complete. But he was a disciple maker to the end. I mean, you look at the names listed here in verses 9 through 13. These were men whom Paul had discipled. Now, the first week of the series, I asked the question, in whom are you investing spiritually? And I asked specifically, can you name people, specific people by name, in whom you're investing? Perhaps children or grandchildren, perhaps friends, acquaintances, people here at church, people who you're intentionally investing in their spiritual growth. Can you name names like that, people who you're investing in? The Apostle Paul certainly could. Mike Montgomery certainly could. I mean, back to this passage, we see the names of several men in whom Paul had been investing. We see Demas and Crescens. We don't know that much about them. But we know some more about some of these others. We see Titus. Titus accompanied Paul on some of his journeys. One of the letters here in the, in the Bible is from, from Paul to Titus. And here in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, Paul calls Titus my true son in our common faith. So Titus was someone in whom Paul had invested. And we also see Tychicus. Tychicus also had traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Tychicus was one of Paul's main couriers to carry Paul's letters to the various churches around the Roman Empire. And so these were men in whom Paul had invested. That's not to mention Timothy. Paul obviously invested in many, many others. We see that Paul had a deep passion for making disciples, for investing himself in the lives of others. Even now, the end is so near. Even now, he's stuck in a horrible dungeon. He's still doing everything he can to get the gospel out around the empire and to make disciples. He's sending his guys out to strengthen churches. He's sending letters to people like Timothy. He's personally investing in everyone that he can. 
even while he is in prison. And you know what this shows to me? It shows Paul's heart. He has disciple-making emblazoned upon his heart. I mean, it's a deep-felt passion. It shows that disciple-making is not merely a job. It's not just a temporary role. It's not just a volunteer type of thing that you do. But instead, disciple-making is a deep-seated passion in his life. It is his, his central purpose for what he's doing on this earth. And it's a lifestyle that does not end at some point. You don't have an expiration point as long as you're still alive on this earth, for when you're done making disciples. I mean, you think about various jobs that you retire from. If you're a school teacher or an engineer or a secretary or a factory worker or a dentist or um, list any number of other things, a store manager, even a pastor. These are jobs that people retire from. And once you retire from those things, you may not be doing those things any longer. But making disciples is not a job from which you retire. It's something that that should characterize our lifestyle as long as we are here on this earth. Paul was most certainly living this out. Mike Montgomery lived this out, making disciples through to the end of his life. Coming closer to home here at Frieden's, I think of a woman named Alice Rabenhorst. Talked about her before in this series. Alice, she died in 2015 at the age of 91. She was making disciples through to the end of her life. She was very active in introducing people to Christ for the first time and discipling people and challenging them to keep following Jesus. About six months before she passed away, we made a video uh, interview of her. I want to show you just a clip, just to show you the heart of Alice to persevere through to the end. My name is Alice Ribbenhorst, and I am live at Harbor Club. I was 91 years of age in January of 2015, and I did not get serious, real serious, about Jesus Christ until I was 70 years of age. You read his word. You start to me in the Psalms, beginning little by little, and just inhale them, eat them, digest them, and not be afraid of them. And I've grown, even at at 90, I've grown, and I'm not about to stop because he won't let me. Be honest, be truthful, be, be fruitful in everything you do. And I pray that this message is going into your hearts through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. So for those of you who knew Alice, did she ever stop or even slow down in her devotion to know Jesus better? No. Did she ever retire from making disciples of Jesus and investing in the spiritual growth of others? No. Even at 91, her body was failing her, but she still was making the most of every opportunity to point people to Jesus and to challenge people to keep growing, to be talking about what she's learning in her own reading of Scripture. And did you catch the age at which she began to follow Jesus? 70 years old. We are never too old to start following Jesus 
or to get serious about him or to start investing in the spiritual growth of others. 70 years old, but she made the most of her life once she started to, to follow Jesus. She made the most of every opportunity to pass that baton on to others. And we have that same opportunity, regardless of our age, to pass that baton to others. Now, I was thinking, as I'm thinking about this heart that the Apostle Paul has, this heart that Mike Montgomery has, that Alice had, I was thinking, where does that heart come from? How does someone really get that passionate about passing the baton to others, about investing their life in other people's spiritual growth? And I think there are many different potential sources of where that passion can come from. I think part of it's simply a passion to know Jesus better and want others to know him too. But I think for myself, part of my primary passion for wanting to see others grow as followers of Jesus and invest my life in that is having seen God work through me to help others grow as followers of Jesus. It's addicting when you see life change happening before your eyes. I think back to when I was a college student. My last couple of years, I extended my four-year degree into five years. So I was there for a while. Um, and I, I came to Christ late in my sophomore year of college. And so by the end, I'd been a Christian for a couple of years. I had no special training or anything like that, no seminary degree. Didn't even have a college bachelor's degree yet at that point. But you know what? I had the opportunity to just hang out with guys and to lead Bible studies and meet one-on-one and just talk with people about Jesus and to invest in people's spiritual growth. And it didn't feel like anything super special at the time, but these are some of the pictures of some of the guys that I got to share life with. And a lot of it was simply hanging out. One of the guys there in the bottom center with the hat on backwards he was a really good friend of mine. I mean, he got serious about Jesus in his final year as well. He'd kind of been in the party scene for the first few years of college. But he started to get serious about Jesus. He asked if we could start meeting. So we started meeting on Saturday mornings. We would um, just have breakfast together. or He'd bring stuff over and we'd grill together and stuff like that. And, and we'd just read the Bible together and talk about um, growing and, and talk about things that we need to be held accountable for. We, we'd pray for each other. It's iron sharpening iron. And I look at these pictures of these guys. And there's one of them who I, I've lost contact with him years ago after he entered the army uh, right out of college. But all the rest of them, I still have contact with them. And the other seven with whom I still have contact, they are all still following Jesus very strongly. It's so encouraging to see. And, and that was really what drew me into ministry in the first place, was seeing God transform people's lives. There's nothing quite like that. And having a part in that. And you know what? A lot of other people had a part in these men's spiritual growth as well. I wasn't the only one. But it was so exciting and so encouraging just to see people's thirst to grow. And to be able to have a part in helping them grow as a follower of Jesus. And see the transformation from one week to the next. From one month to the next. And we all have the opportunity And I think when when people struggle to really have a heart to invest in the spiritual growth of others, I have to think at least part of it is perhaps they have never seen and experienced what it's like to invest in the spiritual growth of others. They've never seen someone growing spiritually as a result of their investment. And I'm talking about more than just leading a Sunday school class. I mean, God definitely works through Sunday school. He works through Bible studies and small groups. But I'm specifically talking about being intentional to invest even one-on-one, relationally, over an extended period of time in the spiritual growth of other people. Think about what Mike Montgomery was doing with Nick Hall 
or with Pete Yolden. It was a one-on-one investment over a period of time that led to life transformation. And we all have that same opportunity. Now, that was one observation in this passage just about how Paul's making disciples to the end. The other observations I read this passage, and again, there's a whole lot going on here, but the other observation is that disciple makers frequently suffer wounds. They suffer wounds. You look at the Apostle Paul. He, he obviously had physical wounds and scars. He, he endured a lot of um, beatings down, down through his life. But he also suffered emotional wounds as well. And those are very evident in this passage. Disciple making is great, but there are challenges along the way. One of the wounds that Paul suffered was, was um, just a wound of, of heartache. Think about Demas. Demas, in Philemon verse 24, it says that Demas was a fellow worker in the gospel. That Demas had been a partner in ministry, a comrade. But then the going got tough, and Demas went home. He abandoned Paul. And you think about that heartache, and if we invest our lives in the spiritual growth of other people, there are going to be times when we see people that we love and we care for and we've invested in, there are going to be times where we see them struggling. There may even be times where someone that we've invested in who we love very dearly walks away from Jesus. And that hurts. So if we invest ourselves in other people's spiritual growth, there are going to be times where we suffer the wounds of heartache. Paul also suffered wounds of personal attack. You think about Alexander the metal worker. He says in verse 14, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. I think odds are very good that Alexander used to be an ally in ministry with Paul. But something happened. He got angry. He turned very hard against Paul. And it says that Alexander caused me a great deal of harm. He caused me personally. It's not just that he harmed the church or he, he, he was speaking out against the gospel. Paul says he harmed Paul personally. Wounds of personal attack. And we have to face the fact that there are a lot of people in this world who don't really care much for Jesus. And if we want to invest our lives in the spiritual growth of others, we may encounter times where people may not like their friends or their family members getting serious about Jesus. And then that may lead to attacks against us as well. Verbal attacks. um, I mean, just people saying things that aren't true or just stabbing us in the back. That can happen. It can happen in any part of life, but including when we're seeking to invest in other people's spiritual growth. These are wounds that disciple makers at times suffer. Paul also evidently here suffered from the wound of loneliness, of isolation. Verse 16, he says, at my first defense, on that first trial, he says, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. I mean, you look at how Paul is spending his final months of life on this earth. I mean, he's not in retirement somewhere kicking up his feet by the fire. He's not surrounded by friends and family who are just reminiscing with him about the good old times and and expressing their gratitude to him. He's stuck in a dungeon, which is absolutely terrible even compared to the relative comfort of today's prisons. That is how he is living out his final days and weeks and months here on this earth. Yet, he is not getting bitter. He is not getting upset. He, he, we see here that God's grace empowers 
perseverance and it empowers forgiveness. Because you look at how Paul's responding here. And he could have gotten really upset. He could have gotten this big chip on his shoulder and said, you know what? I don't care about those people anymore. He abandoned me. I don't care about him. I mean, look at how he's responding in each of these situations. I mean, look at Mark. Let me fill in some of the backstory behind Mark in verse 11. It says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. That is a change in perspective. Because back in Acts chapter 13, Mark was on a missionary journey with Paul. And then Mark decided it's a little bit too hard, so he went home. The exact same thing Demas did. And then you come to Acts chapter 15, and, and Paul still doesn't think that Mark is quite ready to come along in the next missionary journey because Mark is not yet trustworthy enough. But here in 2 Timothy, we see that, that Paul is not harboring bitterness and grudges against Mark. It's not like he struck out one time, now he's forever banished from Paul's presence. Instead, he says, no, Mark is useful. Bring him to me. You see reconciliation, forgiveness, grace, redemption. It's the power of the gospel at work in Mark's life and in Paul's life. Look at how Paul is viewing the situation with Alexander. He says, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm but listen to what he says next. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. He's not being vindictive in saying that. It's simply a matter-of-fact statement. He's saying, you know what? Alexander did some terrible things. He really hurt me. Watch out for him. Be careful. But I'm trusting the situation to God. I'm not taking wrath or vindication into my own hands. I'm going to trust it to God. And then you look as well at his response when, when he was abandoned at his trial. He says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. He's not getting bitter or holding grudges or getting a chip on his shoulder. He says, may it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. One of the cool things when we struggle, when we suffer, when we're vulnerable, is they can drive us back to Jesus. And that is what Paul experienced. So you see the grace that Paul is living. And grace has saturated Paul's heart. And that enables him to respond to adverse situations in, in very impressive and godly ways. And I think it's very appropriate that the final words that we have recorded from the Apostle Paul, verse 22, he says, Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Now within six months of writing this letter, the Apostle Paul was dead. He was beheaded in Rome. The Emperor Nero, Emperor of the Roman Empire, was harshly persecuting Christians. There was probably another trial. Didn't go well. Paul was beheaded. There was no fanfare surrounding his passing. There wasn't any special celebration of life and, and everything that Paul had done during his life. But he left a rich legacy. And that's the way it is for disciple makers. That we, we can leave a legacy in the lives of other people. An imprint of spiritual growth and an imprint of the gospel. Because we can pass on the baton to other people. We all have that opportunity. I think again of Mike Montgomery. Back in early April, I watched Mike Montgomery's funeral on Facebook Live. I didn't know him personally, as I said, but I was drawn to see what is it like to celebrate and remember the life of someone who invested himself so thoroughly in the spiritual growth of other people. 
I was drawn to this. So I was watching this funeral um, from Fargo on Facebook Live. And, and it was both sad, but it was also beautiful to see an example of a life well lived. An example of someone who invested himself fully in the spiritual growth of others. And I look at the impact that he had on other people and I think, you know what? That is not rocket science. That does not require a seminary degree to do that type of stuff. Any one of us can have the type of impact on other people that Mike had. I mean, just listen to the words of, of Pete, and Pete Yolden and Nick Hall, who I read from earlier. Listen to the things that they mentioned that Mike did to influence them. And think about how we can do that exact same thing. Mike welcomed someone to youth group. It's not rocket science. Just welcoming someone with open arms. Helping them feel comfortable and welcome there. He shared the gospel with someone who wasn't yet a Christian. He encouraged someone to read the Bible. He cared for people. He opened his life and his home to them. He took the initiative when he saw someone struggling to take them under his wing and to, to help support them and nurture them and encourage them. He prioritized talking with people on a regular basis. Yeah, that's just a basic thing with investing in people's lives. We have to slow down. We have to prioritize just spending time with them, talking with them. He celebrated with people's victories. He mourned with people's losses. He lovingly rebuked people when they got off course. He told people how proud he was of them. He was a safe place to confide in. And he modeled what it looked like to live with the joy of knowing Jesus. These are things that all of us can do. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't even have to have been a Christian for all that long in order to do these things. It's just a matter of being intentional. And sometimes what it takes is just making ourselves available. Because so oftentimes we are so busy and just going through life and focused on, on what we need or what our family needs and what's urgent in the moment that we miss the opportunity. So what I want to challenge us to it's to be intentional to pass that baton. If you are someone that, that you struggle to name who you are intentionally investing in spiritually, over the next week or two, I want to challenge you and encourage you to think and pray about who might you take that initiative with. Don't just wait for someone to come to you. Go to them. Maybe it's teenagers here in the church. If you're wondering, hey, maybe there's someone in middle school or high school who, who may benefit from someone coming alongside them and supporting them and encouraging them. If you don't know who that might be, talk with me. Talk with Krista Teller. We would love to point you to, to guys or girls who greatly benefit from someone investing in their life. Maybe it's other adults here in this church. When there are small groups, there are Bible studies. There are going to be a lot more starting in a few months. They provide opportunities to, to meet people who can invest in their spiritual growth. Maybe it's people at work. Maybe it's people just, you know, in the, around the neighborhood who might have some spiritual interest. You could develop a relationship with them intentionally. You could share the gospel with them in an appropriate manner. You could, you could encourage them to turn to Jesus in their struggles. You could pray for them. It takes intentionality. But there is such joy that comes from seeing God work in other people's lives. It's a part of what he calls us to as well, being ambassadors for Christ, passing that baton to those around us. And so as we close this series, I just want to ask us, what type of legacy are we leaving in the lives of those around us? 
There are all kinds of legacies we can leave, but I pray that a part of our legacy for each one of us is a legacy where we can say, you know what, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I kept the faith, and I faithfully passed that baton on to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you put men and women in our lives who care about us. Men and women who've gone before us, who passed that baton on to us, maybe people that we knew personally, maybe people who influenced people we know. And they are part of our legacy of faith. We thank you, Lord, for the people down from Jesus through the Apostle Paul, down through the centuries, people like Mike Montgomery, people like Alice, so many people who have been faithful to pass that baton on to others. Lord, as that baton is passed to us, I pray that we will be faithful, each one of us, to run well in the race of faith, not give up early, to not go into retirement or walk with you or retirement and making disciples, but that we will be intentional to follow you faithfully and to pass that baton of the gospel and of sincere faith in Christ to those around us. Lord, I pray that you open our eyes to people in our midst in whom we can invest. Give us the priority to, to, to make that a priority, to put in the sacrifice, put in the intentionality, invest the time, but also, Lord, help us to, to experience the joy of seeing you work in the lives of those around us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.